PGR so tonight, no Matt, he is elsewhere and because we have got a very special guest tonight. So, as we always say, who are you? What do you do? Oh, um, hello, I'm <laughs> I'm Brian. Nice to see you again, by the way, Peter, at, uh, nice. all this time. But uh, yeah, I'm Brian Talbot. I've been writing and drawing uh, comics and graphic novels for over 40 years now. Starting in underground comics back in the 70s, comics of the... Uh, counterculture of the time um but i've worked on all sorts of comics from superhero comics science fiction biography um i've even done a couple of children's comics um everything in between really i mean you've got you've an entire broad spectrum of work you're not doing like pitching all into one genre and also your artwork has kind of changed with each one it's evolved over time and I mean, what I've also find interesting as well is that you're not just a writer or an comic artist. You do both, which is, you know, which I found kind of very rare in the medium, isn't it? Well, there look quite a few. There's people like, you know, Jeff Smith and Frank Miller and um, there's probably Daryl Cunningham. You know, there's quite, quite a few. Paul Simmons okay. over here. But yeah, yeah, they're not, uh, not as common as uh, sort of specialising in one, one, one aspect. Yeah. Why Why did you want to kind of like maintain, like be the writer and the artist as well? Do you for the full creative control or was it? Well, yeah. I mean, especially mostly for most of the last 20 years. And uh, I've also retained the rights. Yeah. So uh, that's why I stopped working on things like Batman or Dread or whatever. Um, because they're other people's characters, you know, you don't own them. Um, but if it's your own work, you own everything, you know, and you get, if it does sell well, you can never tell whether it is going to sell well or not, um, you know, you get the, more of the royalties. Um, it's, yes, but, that's, but I, yeah, I like control the complete train set, you know, basically. <laughs> yeah, well, well like, it's your world and you can therefore do what you want with it and so you're not beholden to anyone or anything, really, when, no. you know. Yeah. I mean, you were there at Ground Zero, with the with comics emerged from the underground all the way to mainstream now to the point where you see comic books in Waterstones. Yeah, yeah, that was they were there twenty years ago. You know it's, exactly. Uh, yeah, I mean, I mean, what's it been like for you, like to go from like the as you say, like the underground comics movement to being a cost a cost winner? Well, I mean, it's um, it takes a while, you know. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I'm not sure if you remember the. The, the big uh, original com the graphic novel boom in the in the eighties and watching yeah. came out and Dark Knight and Mouse and it was suddenly comics were cool you know and there were magazines and you know grown up newspapers actually <laughs> with headlines like <laughs> Splat Poe comics aren't for kids anymore you know and um, suddenly they were they were very trendy and um, but the thing is it it just it bubble burst very quickly because at that time. There just wasn't, you know, the, enough quality material to sustain this sort of interest, and there was a big interest in it at the time. I remember getting on a getting on a train in London to go back to Preston, where I was living then, and um, this sort of based on what was Yuppie got in got in the carriage and sat opposite me and opened his briefcase out and turned a copy of Love and Rockets. I said, "Read it, open it on the train." I thought, "Wow, you know, it's uh, um, really catching on." But yeah. There were very few graphic novels around at the time, really. I mean, this was a time you could do two or three published every year and you could actually read them all, you know. Um, yeah. But, you know, once you read about a, a dozen of the best ones, uh, you know, there wasn't very much good stuff around. And, you know, Marvel and DC and other publishers who were publishing, uh, you know, superhero comics, which at the time were incredibly bland and, you know, not like... Um, not, not like they are now. Um, they sort of went, oh, graphic novels are selling. So they collect half a dozen copies of Spider-Man and slap them together and call it a graphic novel. But, you know, people who bought Watchmen and gone, wow, these graphic novels are great. You'd pick up, oh, another graphic novel. And they go, what's this crap, you know? And <laughs> it'd, it'd confirm all the worst prejudices, really, about comics. But since then, the graphic novels have been coming out more and more frequently exponentially actually I mean, more and more you can't read them all now there's dozens and dozens published every year hundreds probably so now by this by the turn of the century 
the um, we had become established, you know, such a range of quality material in whatever style, whatever genre, you know, there was enough the, enough to maintain this um, the second boom, which is still going on. You know, yeah. it's, um, this is the golden age graphic novels. It's been going on now for a good fifteen years. You know, it's um, and yeah, nowadays, I mean, we get invited to more to literary festivals than we do to comic do's these days. Um, you know, every most literary festivals, decent ones, have a graphic novel component now. You know, they've been interviewed by Radio 4, you know, reviewed in tabloid, you know, uh, not tabloid, um, you know, broadsheet newspapers, yeah. respectable newspapers um, and magazines. It's uh, it's just it's changed a lot. And this winning, Mary's first book, Winning the Costa, that was uh, an example of that. Yeah, I mean, like so, um, you've collaborated with Mary as well on like several books as well, mm -hmm. where, where, as I understand it, you were the artist and Mary was the writer, or was it, yeah. or was it more collaborate, collaborative than well, that? Well, there was some give and take, you know, I contributed bits of scripts, everything, but mainly Mary wrote the script, and then we, were, as I'm drawing it, we'd be discussing it, and I'd say, I think this panel needs to be split over two or whatever, I think this balloon needs making, you know, the, the text needs making it clearer, that's my big thing, trying to make things explicit without them seeming <laughs> too explicit, you know. Um, but so I, I've been putting it, and she, you know, when I'm drawing it, she'll say, "Oh, how about it's in here or whatever." So there's give and take. Yeah, I'm currently, I'm currently now. I'm working on I'm more than halfway through a fifth book, which is. Ah, uh, can uh, you say anything about it? Yeah, yeah, it's 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 a biography of Leonora Carrington. Okay, because, um, she was the last. Of the original surrealists. Ah, oh. she only died a few years ago. She only died about 2014, 2012, or something. Wow. Okay. And she was quite young, and but she she was there in the 30s in Paris with Picasso and Dali, and I mean she was um, Max Ernst's lover for a few years. You know, I mean, yeah. Um, she knew all these people. Um. So yeah, and she's a fantastic, fascinating person. She was completely, completely wacky. Um. I mean, and at one point, the point I'm, I'm actually up to now, I'm drawing, she had this uh, complete psychotic episode in the early 1940s, which is a Spanish mental hospital for, for quite, a, quite a while. Um, you know, and it's called, the book is called Armed with Madness, which is a quote, Leonora Carrington. That sounds fantastic. Yeah. I mean, so it's a surreal biography. I'm drawing it in a surreal style. Oh, that's going to be fantastic. Yeah, we kind of embrace the surrealism mm. and kind of interweave that with the characters. Well, that'd be, that sounds perfect. Yeah, it's supposed to be coming out next May, uh, May next year from Self Made Hero. So. Just in time for my birthday. I'll tell, I'll tell my wife, Kalia. <laughs> um, has collaborating with Mary been any different to previous collaborations? Like you, you were from Neil Gaiman in the past and others. It's a way, like a way, as I understand it, where an artist is given the script mm. and then draws it has given obviously you're married to mary has that kind of changed the collaborative nature of creation yeah it's a lot closer than most collaborations i mean in a lot of comics the collaboration ends with the artist writing the, the writer writer finishing the script and giving it to the artist or have the, the editor giving it to the artist and that they don't even talk sometimes you know especially in, in american mainstream uh, superhero comics um but yeah, so it's very close. Um, like I say, while every every book she's done, while she's been developing the plot, you know, we'll be chatting it about it at night um, during dinner, you know, and um, yeah. uh, sitting in the living room after after dinner, um, you know. So we'll be, you know, I'll, I'll suggest things as they're going along. So yeah, yeah. But I mean, having said that, I'm, when I worked with Pat Mills and Neil Gaiman before, we used to talk. Um, practically every day on the phone while, while I was sometimes I'm, I'm actually I was actually drawing it the drawing but I'm, I'm inking it and talking to them at the same time yeah but uh yeah it, it is an unusual collaboration usually close collaboration it's the fact that you might marry it's like you know, what happens when you kind of say well I think this sh should be here and Mary's mm. going well no that should be there do you have that kind of um... no we, we never do really you know right. he trusts me what I'm doing and she's you know, got into it really quickly. I mean, 
the first, um, I mean, you know, she was academic for of course. many years and she took early retirement because she got sick of the constant cost cutting and uh, being made to do more, more work for the same money and everything. It was, it was got a bit too much. And she got out and uh, one night we were just sitting around and I said, um, we were watching a movie or something. And I said, hey, why don't you write a graphic novel and I'll draw it. And she went, what? I said, yeah, yeah, think about it. And she did and it won a Costa Award. It was the first British graphic novel to win a major literary award. Um, and her first script was, it was a bit like, um, a bit like a, a script of a play. It wasn't broken down to pages and panels. Yeah. It was like characters and descriptions of scenes. But by the second one, the script for Sally, I mean, she was there. She was like, you know, page one, panel one. You know, she was doing it on a nine panel grid and, um, yeah. you know, panel description text, you know, it was a proper comic script. So she picked it up very quickly. I mean, she, she's spent years seeing me do it, you know, but uh, she's always, she was always the first person I'd show a script to, written a script, before I'd show it to an editor or anything, you know. Yeah, I mean, yeah, and like uh, Dot of Her Father's Eyes is, is part, like, a biography of um, Joyce. Well, Lucia Joyce, really. Lucia Joyce, and yeah. also her, her own backstory as well, mm, which yeah. I found great. And uh, yeah, it's like, you, you, I think you're in it as well. Like, well, yeah. Obviously. obviously. It's Mary's, Mary's biography. Yeah. Um, what she's doing, I mean, she's basically continuing all the work, her academic work, which is all about gender and power and language. And she's basically tackling the same subjects in her, in her books. The um, So what she's doing with, she was contrasting two, two girls growing up, basically at different parts of the 20th century and different expectations of what, you know, a woman can do and what a woman is expected to do. Yeah, and yeah, it's, 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 it's contrasted brilliantly, really kind of, and your artwork just ups, embeds the reader in it mm. and really kind of gets them involved in it. I mean, your work, in, as in the whole, is incredibly political throughout your mm. story. I mean, you can read them, like, for example, Granville is just, you could read that as a, you know, a rip roaring adventure tale. Mm. The, the subtext and like you know, the you know the the politics of it come across so much more when you kind of just pause and just consider it a second. Yeah, it's about the class system. It's about racism. It's about yeah, a lot of things. Yeah, I mean like you've got like, the reference of the do, the doe faces as well, like you know, and like being second class citizens. Yeah, yeah, and protest movements and the, the rise of the right wing. Yeah, yeah, I mean, and you don't hold back you, you don't I mean the subject is always there but you don't hold back in your politics which I think is refreshing in many ways yeah I mean I don't, I don't want to preach in the stories exactly but, uh, um, I want I mean my primary aim is to tell a good story you know to tell a story that is involving but it's also thought-provoking thought and intelligent yeah they're aimed at adults you know because they're aimed at adults of course, yeah. I mean, yeah, like, I mean, one of your most complex stories, well, when I first read them, especially, was The Adventures of Luther Arkwright. And that is about, you know, you could, on one level, that is a, you know, cross-dimensional adventure-hopping tale of good versus evil. And then you read it a bit more, and you, again, you pause and consider, like, no, this is a lot more. This is about control, about authority, the right of authority, about, you know, who was the right and and like and right, dictatorships and, and, uh, exactly and rebellion um, and uh, you know I sort of switch that's what you can do with parallel worlds you can sort of switch things around so if you notice in the story that the Union Jack it's actually the, the flag of the terrorists in the story um, but you'll notice that at the end of the story they when they get into power they're all better than the Puritans. <laughs> Absolutely, yeah. I think it was it was Hiram Kowalski writes in the mm. in the in his final um, news piece. He kind of like you know, he ponders where where will this go, mm. and he kind of like there's a kind of subtle underhint of a warning of this. It's not going to change. It's going mm. to continue being the same. And again, you dress that wonderfully in Heart of Empire. Um, Come back we, 23 years later, yeah. It's when you, you come back to 20 years later, and you know, uh, Queen Anne is essentially the 
the head of this massive global mm. empire and subjugating you know countries world. around the, subjugating the entire world which is no different to what the puritans were doing which again it was just a fantastic twitch when you think about it of you know the well the puritans were a lot more it was like isolationist they were just like little 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 country you know on their own um but yeah Ante took it further and she's bleeding the whole world dry with its resources and uh, <laughs> and, and again, you contrasted that with the story of Henry and how he was kind of leeching um, the world. Psychic uh, energy, yeah. It's psychic energies. And again, there's that whole contrast there. He's like the eponymous heart of the empire, you know, leeching everything to himself. Yeah, and again, from the very start as well, he had, had this countdown throughout. Mm. At first it was days. So, well, so it was a week, weeks, then it was days. Okay. Yeah, it was days. Then, yeah. The days, then hours, and mm. then I think the last uh, issue too is like done over minutes. Yeah, yeah. Where they counted down. I mean, how did you plan all that time? I mean, that requires some, you know, mm. incredible I, planning. I always spend a lot of time on the structure. It's very important. Yeah, I mean, I mean how, how do you prepare for a story? I mean, like, uh, does the idea of it come first, or do you how far how far in advance do you plot things out? It depends. Um, depends on the sort of story. Um, uh, I mean, Heart of Empire, I think I was thinking about it for most of the 10, 10 or 12 years since I finished the last art ride. Oh, wow. <clears throat> you know, as I was doing other things, I also yeah. had Rat, which I thought about for, was thinking about for a few years before I did it, and uh, the Batman story I did, I wrote. And, um, and Alice, I was thinking about that for quite a few years and doing a lot of research and um but yeah once you've got everything together the ideas come in bits and pieces and you start gradually you start seeing a, a vague structure a very vague um but when i've got every all the information in place and i'm no more or less uh, what i want to do then i start structuring the story and sometimes that takes well alice took six solid weeks just to structure that's working every day for seven days a week, you know, oh. uh, all day. Um, yeah. And um, what I usually do is I tape together sheets of A3 paper and completely construct the plot on a scene after scene. Um, so I can see, I mean, the good thing is you can see it all at a glance. You can yeah. see it and you can see this is happening here, this is happening here, you know. You can plot sort of movements through it. And it'll go, I'll do that, that, and then I, I'll go, by, by the time I finish, it's full of arrows pointing and moving scenes around and notes. And that's all scrap, I'll put that to one side and then do a second draft, then a third draft, and however many draft it takes. Um, and it's a great way of, you can see the whole story, you know, you can foreshadow events, you know, this is happening here, right? It needs foreshadowing here, you know, I need to sort of drop hints about this because, you know, I don't, Things seem to just happen out of the blue. You know, they have to happen in a logical sequence and uh, there has to be a reason for it. And even little things like, you know, or in this scene, um, pretty consistently example, but uh, somebody opens this door and gets this gun out and nobody knew it was there. Well, you can go, right, okay, well, in this scene, we're in this room, I can show the drawer with the gun in it or ah. whatever to make a note. And, um, but yeah, Alice was especially difficult to structure because it was told as if it was stream of consciousness. It, it uses dream logic in the storytelling. So it, it seems like it's made up as it's, I'm going along, it's not, it's got a rock solid structure underneath it with every little bit of information, exact place it's needed to be able to, to follow the next bit. Um, you know, throughout the story, the seeded <laughs> throughout the story. Um, yeah, that was um, incredibly hard to structure. Yeah, actually, one of my notes says in front of me, just mm. below the screen, is actually stream of consciousness mm. for Alice. Because, yeah, it just feels like a, a dream sequence. And you, yep. again, you, you end that as if, oh, I've just had a dream. Um, but yeah, I mean, that. Well, I got I, it from Lewis Carroll. Lewis Carroll used dream logic in Alice, you know. Um, yeah. And I did on my first comics, first brainstorm comics, the underground ones, they were psychedelic trips, you know. I mean, they were. Yeah. And they use dream logic, you know, one scene and morph into another one, character and morph into something else, you know, it's, yeah. 
Anyway, like you, you, you heard come to like Chester P. Hackenbush and um, Frank Fuzzicky at Space Ace, weren't they? Oh, yeah. And, but yeah, I mean, Alice was, you know, incredibly detailed. I mean, like, I, I come from the area, I come from the Northeast, and I could, re I recognize a lot of those places where you um, joined. Because I've been there, I've seen that. And yeah, well, you come from near Stockton, you know. Exactly. So that, which is also, which is where Carol lived for years, you know. Yeah. Um, and yeah, just, you absolutely know that area. And like, the depth of your research comes across incredibly well. And one thing I found is when you're reading it, where before were like the previous graphic novels, there's kind of a pacing element where it's kind of just pauses. This is just continuous mm. and it's sort of interweaves like from one stage to the next. Mm. Yeah, yeah, you sort of well, one of the threads is the story of Lewis Carroll, the life of Lewis Carroll. So I sort of tell that in bits as they're prompted in the story throughout the, story, throughout the book. Yeah. And the fun as well is like also, it's just as much. Studying Carol is a study on the nature of storytelling and uh, myth and legend and history. Uh, you're back. Oh, sorry. Back? Yes. Yes. The screen froze for, for a while. Okay. Yeah. So, uh, as I was saying, like um, in Alice, there's the there's it's interweaving of. Uh, the history of Lewis Carroll, as well as the nature of storytelling and history, and how the two are interlinked. Yep. I mean, I found I found that incredibly insightful. Mm. Right, thank you. You notice how each different story I tell, even though they're all tied together, sort of thing. The, I use a different style to tell each story. It's a style I think I thought would be suitable for that sort of story. You know, so the ghost story of the cold lad of Hilton. That's told in like an EC horror comic style, um, for example. Um, yeah, but to talk about structure again, the amount of time I spend, it's a camp, camp of years, you know. Yes. I, have, I have a folder over there with notes for story I've been thinking about for 25 years and I still don't think it's quite right. Um, <laughs> the fantasy story, but um, so it can take a long time, but Granville, the first Granville book, that was the complete opposite. Okay. He just sort of came like that, basically. He sort of came fully formed. It was really strange. I'd finished Alice and I was packing away some reference books I'd used, including a book on, um, on John Ignace uh, Isidore Girard, who was uh, a French illustrator, early 19th century, big influence on Tenniel, John Tenniel. And he went under the pen name J.J. Granville, uh, and he did caricatures, early 19th century, he did caricatures of animal of people as animals. And he, 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 there was a satirical and prescribing social mores and uh, uh, I think types of people and things like that. If you do a search for J.J. Granville, you'll see lots of his images on, online. And I suddenly thought, well, Granville, you know, that could be the nickname for Paris in an in a alternative reality, which is a world populated by animals where it's the biggest capital of the world. And that was the idea. And I thought, for years I wanted to do a detective story. I thought, I'll do a detective story set in this world. And I, it was in the back of my mind over a week while I was working on other things. I don't know, I can't remember what I was drawing. It, was, it must have been metronome or something. But um, it was just in the back of my mind for about a week. At the end of a week, I sat down, I got a piece of paper, I wrote the plot out like that, scene one, two, 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 and then picked up the keyboard and started typing it, page one, panel one. And for the first time, I didn't use, all before, everything I'd done, Bad Rat, Batman Story, Heart of Empire, other things, um, I'd done each page first in rough form, in thumbnails, with dirt the script at the same time, in the margins, and for the first time, I just did all that in my head. I was okay. going straight from the plot to the script, and it just wrote itself. I wrote it in about five days. It just—it was like taking dictation. I mean, the characters seemed to speak their own lines. You know, <laughs> it was—it uh, was incredible. The other ones have been quite a lot harder, but uh, the, that first one. I was going to ask, did you already have that kind of five-book arc planned out? No. Okay. No, just that first story, and it was only as I, as I was finishing the story 
And it's quite short for me as a graphic novel, it's only 96 pages, and usually a lot longer. And by the time I finished it, I thought, well, I've had so much fun doing this, I want to do some more. And uh, I already, already had an idea or two for stories, so I started working on the second one. And I was, as I was finishing the second one, I imagined the other three, the three that followed. So, um, yeah. I mean, if you, if you look, there's, there's characters who appear in the first volume and come back in the fifth one or whatever, or first mentioned in the second one, and you only see them two books later. You know, it's uh, there's things planted in there. You do kind of, you're like an incredible knack for referencing and foreshadowing in your stories. And you kind of, and it, and it kind of very much rewards the reader that pays attention. Mm. And I mean, like, like I've read the, recently, we read the Granville stories and they're just an absolute blast. They're just such a fun adventure romp. Mm -hmm. But again, with that kind of political subtext simmering away there in the background. And it feels like almost um, uh, Rupert the Bear, as if it's by Sir Arthur Conan Doyle and uh, Quentin Tarantino. Yeah, that was a couple of the original uh, influences, yeah. Yeah. It, yeah, and again, it just comes across that you kind of got the detective elements of, of Doyle with the horrendous graphic violence of Tarantino. Yep. <laughs> and I mean, for, yeah. yeah, I mean, I, I absolutely rel relished it because it was just a complete, a delightful contrast. Mm. Yeah, the first one is the most Tarantino sort of influenced. Um, and the second one was more Hitchcock. You know, yeah. I have these sort of Hitchcock set pieces with the suspense, you know, the box being strands, Cogs going behind his head is being pushed towards them. And, and the, the finale on top of the... Um, Hitchcock type finale on top of Westminster Cathedral. Of course, yes. Um, and, but then, then, then the third one, it's obviously it's like um, a James Bond sort of influence on that. So they're all sort of slightly off, slightly different slants. Yeah, they, they have like tonal differences between each one. I found. Mm, yeah, yeah, yeah. And that and that kind of kept it fresh when you can when you get to book five. I mean, some books, it's I feel right. I'm into book five with this now okay, it's a bit, I know what's coming, I know what to expect. Mm. With Granville, you don't have that because it is a slight, even though the characters are the same, the world's the same, if somewhat, you know, continued on from the previous story, there's still that tonal shift, so you never know quite what's going to happen. Mm. And I think the, the fifth book is the only time I've ever seen a spoiler protector. Mm. Well, I think I invented that, because I've not heard of them anywhere else, but... Uh... That was only in the British edition. The American oh. edition decided not to have it. They said, oh, people uh, will take it off in the store so they can look at the last pages and <laughs> the retailer won't be able to sell it then. And uh, never happened over here, so. No, no, I, I got mine with the spoiler protective warning sealed. Spoiler sealed. Birthday, birthday present. Yeah, yeah, and uh, yeah, it was, again, it was, a, it was, it delivered. It absolutely delivered. And it kind of, it stopped me Corny kind of, well, what's going to happen here? I had no, well, no, it's sealed. I'm going to respect that of Brian. <laughs> and um, obviously it's there for a reason. So when you get to those final few pages, you kind of, it's got that, you've almost got that second uh, feeling of opening a book for the first time because you're kind of unwrapping it. Mm. Explains what's, uh, got. And I, that sort of book, I think I do that in, isn't it? Have a big sort of Poirot type reveal at the end, you know, um, yeah, again, kind of, again, as you say, kind of echoes that Poirot reveal of this is what this is the final revelation, mm. and it's kind of kept, you know, it's kept doubly closed because it's in the book and then sealed. Yeah, and I mean, for the first time in the in the in the, in the books, you see uh, Rock's backstory. Yes, time as well. You see his mentor and how he's uh, Stanford Hawksmoor and how he's trained up, and. Um, I've I've finished. I think I've got a publisher for it now, but I've I've written uh, a script, which is a prequel to Granville, which okay. is uh, called Case Book of Stamford Hawksmoor, and it's set twenty three years before the first story, at the time of the French uh, end of the French occupation, oh. and it's all in London. It's all that's nice. In, it's also in London in south of england yeah. yeah and again that that i find that you using the, the number 23 years very significant because you you mentioned a few times like the number 23 crops up yeah. a lot in your work doesn't it yeah so i got that from illuminatus uh, from the illuminatus <laughs> books and uh, robert anton wilson the 23 enigma 
Yeah, exactly. It was even a film, wasn't it? It was a film about 23. Yeah, I can't, I, I can't remember what it's called. Or something. Yeah. yeah. But yeah, again, like, um, and one thing I want to discuss as well is you look at um, Heart of Empire, that's very different in style to, you know, the previous the Adventures of Luther Arkwright. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, completely made, uh, like, the Adventures of Luther Arkwright was in gorgeous cross-hatched pen and ink, and uh, Heart of Empire was, like, full colour. And fully aligned, more or less, yeah. Yeah, I mean, did you, I think you used, like, uh, com- like uh, computers for the first time as well, didn't you, with Heart of Empire? Mm-hmm. Uh, no, it was um, it was lettered. It was hand lettered by Ella Deville, but uh, okay. colouring was done by Angus Mackay. Okay, on, on computer. Uh, that's I've, been, I've been very impressed by his colouring on Martha Washington, and, and I've known Angus for years. And um, so when I was, when I did the Technophage comics, um, and they, they were saying, "Oh, we need a colourist," I recommended Angus for that. And so, and Heart of Empire came after that. So. Um, yeah, I provided him with full colour guides for each page. Oh, wow. Either with felt-tip pens or sometimes photographs and saying, can you make it these colours or whatever. Actually, some are on display right now. You know, I have this exhibition at the Cartoon Museum in London. Yeah. That's there for, it runs, it's running for four months. So one of the things it has, it has about three di- of these different um, colour roughs. Okay. I mean, how, 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 Obviously, like we've got computers now, the ubiquitous everywhere. Has the presence of computers influenced how comics are created? I mean, obviously, you still hand draw, do mm. the first hand draw by hand, mm. but do you kind of scan them in and then touch yeah. them up on screen? Scan them on, clean them up. I mean, you in the past before that, you you'd do the inks and then you'd use process white, you know, white gouache to go around cleaning up little, you know, splodges or little mistakes, whatever. And that's quicker to do on computer now. And with Granville, of course, they're all coloured. I coloured them all on computer. Yeah. And lettered them on computer. Yeah, since Alice, I've done my own lettering. Because Comicraft, the company, did, in exchange for an illustration I, did, I gave them, uh, oh. they, they made my, uh, I sent them, a, you know, my hand lettering, and they made a font out of it. Oh, wow. So uh, I've been using that ever since. Okay, so you've got your own, your own what, what's what's the called? Is it? It's just Brian Tollett font, yeah. Okay. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> That's brilliant. I mean, it's available was, through it's available through Comicraft. Yeah, I'm going to go there. <laughs> um, but yeah, I mean, has like the, you're doing things on computer now um, in, increased the productivity of the speed of your comic creation no. process? No, <laughs> no, it takes longer actually. Um, really? Well, you know what it's like on computer. You can keep you can go at it forever. You can keep changing things forever. Yeah improving things and it's you know I keep seeing things and changing them and everything which I probably wouldn't have done before and after I reach a point which I call the bugger it point <laughs> you know we have to you've spent that long working on a page I go oh, bugger it that's it oh, it goes but yeah you're talking about the cross hatching in outright well the new one I decided I wanted to go back to that original outright field so it is a bit experimental not as experimental as the first one plots more or less linear, um, but it's, I, I've used gone back to that cross hatching style, and it is very time consuming. Took yeah. a long time. Yeah, because you, you, you have to kind of do each one by hand, don't you? Yeah, and just yeah, yeah. yeah which takes time. I mean, I mean, I suppose like in some ways, kind of computers will kind of you know enable the perfectionist side of you because you can just scroll in and just zoom in as far as you want and yeah. just. That's right. Yeah. Yeah, some of the pages in, I think one of the pages in the first Luther Outright took 56 hours altogether. Solid work. I mean, that's um, the signing of the treaty page. Um, the one with Kowalski, which I call it, I'm the life, the world page, you know, that full. Yeah, that full, full that length took, one. Yeah, that took, um, I think, three solid days work, or four days work. I mean, you know, something like a day to pencil it and about two or three days to ink because this cross hatching, it's like um, knitting, you know. Yeah. You do it for about two hours and you've covered about that much. You, know? <laughs> you just have to keep building up these lines. Yeah. Overlaying them and overlaying them and then building up texture and, and shade. And at the time I was doing first art, right? I was thinking, you know, I must be bloody crazy. 
because at the time, I was getting it for a little independent comic called Near Miss. I was being paid £10 a page for it. You know, oh. you, know, you know, four days for £10, you know. Uh, I was thinking I must be absolutely mad. But having said that, it's been in continual print for the last, since it, since it was, since the 70s. <laughs> since the late 70s, it's never gone out of print and it's been, it's had lots of foreign editions. I've saw the film option several times. Well, films have actually come of it. It's actually under option now for a TV series. You know? Oh. Whether it happens or not, I don't know. Um, there's been an audio drama made of it. David Tennant as Leif Arkwright. Yeah, yeah. In fact, the Heart of Empire audio drama comes out this year. Uh, okay. With Tennant reprising his role as Leif Arkwright. Oh, that's fantastic. Yeah. Well, that's neat. Yeah, I met him three years ago. Neil introduced me to Oh, brilliant. The thing he was doing, he was a lovely, lovely guy. And I, I could say, oh, you played one of my characters. Yeah, what? Oh, yeah, I'll do that again. When I say what they want to do, part of Empire. Went, All right, okay. So, um, <laughs> That's nice. So you, again, so you actually have met the voice of Luther Arkwright in many ways. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, the, um, the attention to detail of Luther Arkwright comics, I think it really comes across in the signing of the treaty. When mm. I think it was, the, I think, in the back of the issue, you actually name every person involved in that yeah, treaty. A key, a key illustration key, isn't there? They're all, all, all the figures are numbered, who they are. Which again, it's like, it didn't need to be there. No. <laughs> but it just sells you, it just reinforces the detail. And also it kind of just tells the reader that you need to pay attention. Mm. You really need to be, because there is information here that you do not, that you can easily miss if you do not you know properly read it around if you skim through it you're going to miss loads yeah well i think i tried to do it so people you didn't necessarily need you didn't need to know who all these people were really but uh, you could follow the story without it it's nice on little details like that i mean also you had like the the, um the tarot reading by octaviana oh yeah of luther and again that you kind of look back to it and like if you know anything about tarot you can actually read what's going to happen in the future yeah, well, yeah, Mary used to read tarot. So, I mean, she did the the, the tarot cards and I drew them yeah. in the, into the story. I said, I want a reading for Artwright. And she knew all about the story and what was supposed to be going on and things like that. She did a suitable uh, uh, tarot display. Oh, nice. <laughs> yeah. Um, one thing I noticed as well is Heart of Empire kind of t- takes all the loose ends mm-hmm. or continues the story of... Eventually, Luke Arkwright addresses them and resolves many of it, like, no, it like addresses his children, um, without going into spoilers or anything, addresses his children, the nature of the world, and continues what and more. But it feels like that, that's the kind of ending of Luke Arkwright's story in many ways, because he's happy, he's, he's done his penance on that world, mm. and he's kind of you know, happy in and of himself, and he's going off to adventure now. And, but now, you know, we've got the pun with Bertha. But with, and I must say, I love the healing of Fairfax. Mm. That was such a, just a joy to read. Right. Because um, it's just, it was so in character, yet so brilliantly done. Oh, so uh, the new one, yeah. Which is set, it's set 53 years later. Yeah. And I mean, <laughs> like, I saw how, where does the legend of Uvra cry come to now? Because I mean, it feels like, it's in t- it's, I feel like I'm telling you a story from what I'm gathering. Well, all well, it is, but... Well, it is, yeah. Yeah. Um, so, can I tell you, I mean, it starts out, he's, uh, he's still travelling the parallels with, with Fairfax, who's now about, what is it, about 128. Uh, you know, a result of that healing thing. He, ah, of course. He put so much psychic energy into it. It was sort of literally reborn in each cell. He was... <laughs> um, but uh, yeah, and we you know, there's uh, zero zeros in it. There's quite a few. There's quite a few parallels in it. Actually. Quite a few different par- more parallels than in, than in the other scene in the other ones. Okay. In one book. Um, so a lot of it's sort of, sort of a chase um, across different parallel worlds, and um, which are quite different. You know, there's some utopias, some dystopias. Um, I mean, basically, there's, um, you know, outright, it's the next stage in human evolution and everything. 
well, this, um, there emerges uh, a more developed stage. Ah. <laughs> it's, it's a lot more alien than, you know, and um, despises humanity for what they're doing to the planet. It's very, very fond of nature and, you know, and, and the world and everything. And he's basically on a crusade to destroy humanity. This creature, well, it's, I say he is a, is a, a hermaphrodite. All right. Um, but he's incredibly, he's got incredible psychic power. I mean, a lot, hugely more powerful than outright. Okay. So there's actually an outright, so anything standing between him and the complete defeat, death and, uh, of humanity. And so he's pursuing outright across these parallels. And, uh, it's, yeah. it's interesting we say about, you know, there's going to be more parallels, pa- parallels here because um, the, the Vincent Nubraka was, I think, was spread over about three. He had like yeah, Nubra's yeah. Home Parallel, 00 and 03856. And there's one that's like ours, like our world, the one where he escapes to. Yeah. yeah. And then you, and I think in um, um, Heart of Empire, it's very much focused on 03856 mm. and 00 with some others. Yeah. I don't, I'm going into too much detail. Um, but yeah, so, so why did you decide to kind of like spread out more? Did you want to kind of embrace the kind of the multi-parallel worlds idea? Yeah, yeah. Yes, being, being more into it rather than being stuck on one. But uh, a lot of it, I mean, the, a lot of this story, especially most of the first half of the story, is set on one parallel in particular. Yeah. It's a, a parallel. <laughs> I'd already drawn most of this before COVID started. It's, it's set on a world where there's been a plague. <laughs> oh, in, wow. In 1943, uh, a terrible a terrible plague wiped out most of humanity. Um, I mean, more than even one in 10, you know, decimated, but I mean, a lot, you know, the, the only, in the whole of British Isles, only about 2,000 people left, 3,000 people. It's, and the idea is, what would that be like on yeah. years later? Ah, see. So it's gone back to the dark ages, you know, all the roads are overgrown, there's trees coming up through roads, houses are falling down, nobody can read or write, but from the monks, yeah. um, you know, there's Britain is a series of small tribes, well, not yeah. small tribes, but there's nine countries, and Britain comprises of nine countries, um, that are, a lot of them are at constant war with each other to try and gain the, you know, take over the, char- the, the territory, because a lot yeah. of it's about nationalism, this story. Um, so it's, it's, you know, it's like going back to the dark ages. That's the idea. I wanted to imagine what Britain would be like if something like that stopped everything. It's on start again. <laughs> yeah, again, like, you kind of, you know, you hearken back to nationalism. Mm. Uh, and, and we're seeing that now globally. Well, yeah, yeah, exactly. That's one of the reasons I thought it was a good time to do another one, you know. Yeah, I mean. Oh, right. Yeah, absolutely. absolutely. We, we, you know, we need the kind of those, warnings out there like you know, it's strong populist leaders and, and not, i mean again there's, there's that line at the end of heart of empire which i just love which is like the you know, show me a nation that needs uh, a strong leader and i will show you a nation of sheep yep <laughs> and i thought yes i could not sum that up any better that was some brilliant writing there yeah i think it's an old anarchist slogan i think yeah. Yeah. oh okay i didn't know that yeah i, I completely support it I think that's just such a succinct yeah. summation. We don't need people telling us what to do. We need people working on our behalf to for, for a betterment, you know. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, I mean, a public service, yeah. a public leader. That's right. Yeah, yeah. and we're going too political. Mm. Too political. <laughs> um, I mean, steampunk's also been a, a constant element in your work. I mean, that. Valkyrie's like recurring steampunk elements, Granville, and so on. What brought you to steampunk in the first place? Um, I think it was growing up in the 60s, actually. Yeah. Um, because when I was uh, when I was about 16, you know, right in the middle of uh, the swinging 60s and everything, uh, suddenly in 16, Victoriana became incredibly trendy. You know, it was fashion. It was a big fashion thing. You know, Jimi Hendrix and Mick Jagger were wearing hussar jackets on stage and performing. Well, um, 
beetles on Sergeant Peppers. That's a, you know, they're wearing this mock Edwardian military uniform. And there were sort of lots of films, very good films on, about, you know, set in Victorian times, like the um, Charge of the Light Brigade and uh, the Wrong Box and things like this. And uh, should the new, suddenly there was a new series of Sherlock Holmes on TV with Douglas Wilmer as Sherlock Holmes and uh, series like Adam Adamant, you probably don't remember. I uh, do remember Adam Adamant. I, <laughs> I actually managed to get them on uh, recently, get a set. Oh, wow. Uh, they really dated badly. <laughs> but at the time, I thought it was brilliant. It was a Victorian adventure who's frozen in time who's suddenly awake in the 60s. And uh, yeah, so all this stuff going on. Um, so it was very, very, very popular. And, you know, I read Mike Murcock's books, which. Jerry, Jerry Cornelius, and that. Yeah, which are proto steampunk, a lot of them. I mean, there's always been steampunk stories around, you know, before that, and pulp stories, you know, but. Yeah. H. Beam Piper and people like this. Um, but uh, I think it was Murkoff who really, you know, started off that trend, and which I used in outright. And then when the first time I met um, uh, Pat Mills, he said, uh, oh, I, I really love outright, and I want to do this, one of these retro science fiction stories, which became the Nemesis story, the Gothic Empire. Oh, yes. Which is why he asked me to draw it after Kev went to, you know, when he didn't go there, but he said he would for America. You know. um, yeah, we, and both of those outright and Nemesis was steampunk way before the coining of the term steampunk. Exactly. I mean, not, I mean also, um, I think I said that you are the, you are the author of the, of the Britain's first graphic novel. Well, it's a good, good strong contender, you know. It's, yeah. Uh, the. Um, I mean, uh, the first graphic novel is usually considered to be Contract with God by Will Eisner. Oh, yes. Because it was the first comic in book form that, that was marketed as a graphic novel. Right. A graph, this is a graph, so that, that's when it starts. Now, in America, there'd be several attempts. Richard Corbin had a bloodstone out in 73, things like this. I think even EC tried to do a couple of adult yeah. in book form. But, you know, the idea of comics, a whole novel being done in comics was incredible to me. And um, Artwright uh, started to be serialised uh, in Near Myths in October, I think it was 78, which is wow. the same, same month that Contract with God was published, coincidentally. And the first collected uh, edition, so the first Graphic, graphic, graphic novel of Artright came out in 82, along with When the Wind Blows by Raymond Briggs. Yes. And Posey Simmons' True Love, both which are graphic novels. But I've seen mine have been serialized right four years before <laughs> I the Edge. You know, so. Yeah. Okay. And again, I mean, since then, um, well, since I suppose, um, well, about 15 years ago, your work has always been released as a graphic novel rather than as a single issue comic. No, they released Bad Rat in four parts. So, yes, you're right. Yeah. Um, well, Granville... mean, it was structured as a graphic novel. It was structured. Yeah. But, well, so was outright the first time. It was structured as a novel. Yeah. Even though it was serialized, which is why all the different parts when they were serialized are all different lengths. <laughs> you know, because they're all just different scenes in this um, graphic novel. Yeah. Do you write with kind of graphic novels in mind or do you? Yeah. Yeah. So yeah, like the, I, the, I, um, the fact that single issues, are, you know, the release of single issues is almost a consequential for you. Um, yeah, well, I'm, I've not done it for so long that um, although the, the the publisher of, uh, I won't say it is, it's not been finalised yet. In fact, I've got a Zoom meeting with them. They'd like to do this Hawksmoor book as a series of comics first and then collect it. So oh. I'm not averse to it, no. Um, but yeah, no, the idea of, I had the idea of, uh, you know, I came across the idea of comics in book form in the early seventies, well, late sixties actually. Yeah. I thought a great notion, you know, a great concept. And I used to do, in the early eighties, I did a talk several times, quite a few times at Unix and universities and libraries and things about history of comics. Uh, talk because I, mean, I was evangelical about trying to improve comic consciousness in the country, you know. 
Yeah. And um, it, it used to finish with, and the future is the graphic novel, you know. Um, and I, was, I was right, more or less. As, as, as sales of individual issues have gone down, you know, sales graphic novels are, are quite big overall. Absolutely. Well, yeah, I mean, if you look at like somewhere like page 45 in Nottingham, yeah. no, they sell graphic novels. They are a comic shop that sell graphic novels. They just sell and, graphic novels, yeah. Yeah, I think they do have, uh, at the way back in the yeah. dark corners, they have like you know, the superhero single issues. Yeah. That's, a cle- and, that's a clever thing about it, you see. They, they don't have to advertise about the people who buy them. They'll go in there anyway to buy them. It's to the general public they're selling. They're selling books to the general public, which is a great idea. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, this is not like tucked away in a dark alleyway mm-hmm. as there have been before. Like, no, these are, it's, it's not even the center. Yeah. It's high street shop. Yeah. Exactly. And it's doing really well. Yeah. It's, it's, been, it's 20, 25 years now, something like that. Something yeah. like that. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I've done yeah. quite a few signings though, yeah. Uh, speaking of signings, do you have any signings lined up for The Legend of Lufa Arkwright? Yes, I'm doing one at Gosh Comics on Saturday, 16th of July. Okay. Any uh, others lined up or? Well, I'll be doing, I, for the first time, I've actually got a table. We're having a table at uh, the Lakes Festival. Okay. Rather than just being there for the weekend and being a patron, you know, whatever. Um, because me and Mary were two of the founder patrons of the festival. Um, we've actually, for the first time, got a t- table there. That would have a change, have a, have a base, you know. Your base of operations, as it were. Yes, that's right, yeah. Okay, would it be so, two? I, oh, yes, uh, the week after, the, the gosh one, I've got one at uh, Forbidden Planet, Newcastle. Okay. Hmm. So you're not got any, any others lined up around the country? Not at the moment, no. Okay. What well, today is? It's Tuesday, isn't it? It I'm is. Actually, yeah. I'm doing a signing tomorrow night, actually. Um, you know, Mary's now the visiting professor of graphic narrative at Lancaster University. Oh wow! Yeah, for the, since last October, took over from Benoit Peters. Um, and one of the things to do with the university and to do with Lancaster is she's giving a talk uh, tomorrow night. At, this thing's called the Park of the Priory in the middle of Lancaster. And we're going to do a signing afterwards. So I'm actually signing tomorrow night in Lancaster. Okay. Um, one thing I want to ask is like, did the like we finally coming out of COVID-19 and its lockdowns? Fingers crossed, touch wood. How did the lockdowns affect you and your writing? Did that have any impact upon you? Or your none. No. Well, I just worked more because um no, it didn't I mean, it didn't make any difference to me because I worked from home seven days a week anyway. Yeah. I mean, that's what, I, that's what I do. So I just did what I usually do. I go for a four-mile walk in the middle of the day, you know, um, brisk four-mile walk. Um, but apart from that, I'm, I'm, I'm in this room uh, working, either at the computer or at the drawing board over there. Okay. Um, sorry, you were going to say? Yeah. I, you, usually, though, before the lockdown, I think, we were, once a month or two, we, we'd be in London or two literary festival or in Paris, we like to go to Paris for a weekend, you know, or something like that. Um, but we couldn't do that, of course. Yeah. So it forced me, it, you know, I was there a lot, lot and I'm, it still took me about two years because it's this cross-hatching, bloody cross-hatching stuff. And I, as soon as I started doing it again, I realised why I'd stopped doing it. <laughs> it just takes so long. It's um, horrendous. Yeah, but... Um, come, come from someone who uh, really appreciates that I just, I just absolutely adore it, and mm. yeah, and the fact it's taken you so long and so intensive, it's kind of makes me appreciate it even more. Yeah, uh, Two hundred thirty pages. This new book. Oh. <laughs> so it did take a long time. And is the Legend of Rock right? That's going to be a single, no, a graphic novel. There's no mm. single issues. No, no, no. Okay, so where do you go from here? I like, got the Legend of Luke Arkwright. Have you got any more books planned for the future? Well, like I said, I'm drawing Mary's fifth one now. And after that, I want to do this, this Hawksmoor book, Stanford Hawksmoor, which is uh, 170 pages. And it's very different. It can be very different from Granville, actually. Okay. It'll have some of the same characters in like I think Quimby Quail's in it and um, Mastock, you know, the... Uh, the murderer 
there's a few characters in it, but it's been, it was still around at the time of Granville, but it's going to be, it's a different sort of story. It's a lot darker and it's a lot more detective-y. And it's, um, it's also going to be in sepia. It's going to be watercolour painted, not... Okay, yeah. Uh, not colored on computer. So it's going to be very atmospheric, I think. You know, lots of London smogs and things like this. Yeah. And um, also, you know, in the Granville books, there's no uh, text. No. So, no, you're right. Apart from the one that starts each book with a little brief description in the background. Yeah. Uh, it's all spoken word. And I've sort of done that since, um, since Bad Rat, really. Purely spoken word. The um, although this outright one, there's quite a few bits of text, but this the stamp the Oxmoor one, it's text heavy. And it's, it's called the Casebook of Stamford Oxmoor. A lot of the dialogue, it's uh, it's it's taken from his writings. Ah, right. So, so it's, it's, um, it's there's a lot of captions, in it, a lot of writing. And I'm very pleased with the quality of the writing. I think it's probably the best thing they've ever written. I mean, okay. I'm looking forward to that. Language-wise, you know, because it's written in this other Victorian style, you know. Okay, brilliant. And um, we've got The Legend of Luther Arkwright that's been released next month. Yeah, 14th. 14th of July. Please, everyone, check it out. It is, it, well, I'm not, I'm not seeing it, but it's going to be fantastic. It's if you go to my website, there's a few examples of some of the panels, a few examples. Okay, and do you have any links to share before we finish off? Uh, no, I don't think so. Yeah, okay. There is this year, actually, <laughs> come to think of it, there's a biography of me coming out. Oh! Which is, in fact, there's two Kickstarter projects. That's one of them. It was, I was contacted a year and a half ago by this uh, academic um, who lives in Beirut, <laughs> of all places. He's, okay. He was a big fan, and he said, can I, I'd like to do a biography. Uh, so I said, okay. So he started writing it, and then he said, well, what about this? What about that? What do you do here? And I thought, it'd be easier if I just co-write it. Yeah. So sort of co-written it, because uh, of all this sort of private stuff that he couldn't possibly know what's going on in my private life. So it's... Um, it's fully illustrated throughout. So okay. there's lots of examples of artwork, uh, photographs, all sorts of things. It's quite, it's it's quite substantial. It's going to be, yeah, it's going to be Kickstarter thing that's coming out. It's, it's um, who are doing it? Can't remember the, the, the Zupel, is it? Publisher. It's, anyway, yeah, um, that's supposed to be coming out this year. Also, the, the NAS is, is going to be a Kickstarter oh. project to republish the NAS in one book. Excellent. Uh, which is good. From, um, uh, what's, oh, what's the name of his publisher? Drew Ford, his name is. Um, he's done quite a few of these books. He specialises in, in getting books which he really likes that are a bit out of print, comics. Yeah. And publishing them. Oh, nice. So anyway, that, that'll be the advertised on my site. That's coming out. And also um, Matt Green, uh, he's a doctor at Nottingham University. Yeah. He's actually bringing out uh, an academic book on my uh, on my work. Oh, wow. Specifically yeah. looking at the political side of it, analysing the political side of it. Oh, that's fantastic. Oh, he's the, he's well, the guy who wrote the book on, uh, on uh, Alan Moore. Right, yeah. Oh, so yeah, fantastic. And uh, well, everyone, please check them out because they would be absolutely fascinating. If you've got any interest in Brian Talbot or graphic novels, these are the places to look. Um, Brian, it has been an absolute pleasure speak, uh, speaking to me today. I apologies for the late start, but Amazon drivers will interrupt you no matter yeah, what. No. <laughs> um, so everyone, I say thank you very much. I have been Peter Ray Allison. And joining me tonight has been Brian Talbot. So thank you all very much for listening and good night. Bye. <laughs> right. Okay. Thank you very much today, Brian. It's been absolutely uh, an invite to the launch party for the book. Oh, where's that? Where's the launch? It's the London Cartoon Museum in London. It's on the 14th. That is very tempting. Mm -hmm. I'm missing dubs. I'm not sure how possibly will be it will be able to, for me to get there. Mm -hmm. But I would see what we can do. Okay. Oh, well, I'll send you the invite anyway. And um, 
Thank you very hey, much. Yeah, Meg, it'd be great to see you. It'd be great to see you too, Ryan. So the, um, I mean, we had the lot, the private view for the exhibition just uh, two or three weeks ago, and that was a lot of people there. You know, um, lots of comic people, uh, Ryan Hughes, all sorts of people. Steve Davis, the comic, the, the snooker player. Yeah. Oh know, wow. Lots of people. So I'm, I'm imagining this is going to be the same. This, um, this, this other one. Yeah, I mean, I think is Adrian going to be there? We actually had Adrian Tchaikovsky. Yeah, yeah. On, on, yeah. Oh, oh, we got. Well, I think he's done the introduction. Yes, and we had, and we had him on our podcast uh, last night. Last night, okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Adrian was there. He was there. In fact, we've got two exhibitions in London at the moment. There's also one, the graphic novels of Mary Talbot. If you go oh. to my website, you'll see the thing. That's at a place called the Bookery Gallery, um, which is just artwork from her books. And um, yeah, and the, this one at the, the Cartoon Museum. But, uh, yeah, Adrian was at both of them. Came to both of the uh, brilliant. Private yeah, meetings. yeah, he's, he's a lovely guy, Adrian. I mean, I met him, met him a few several times at various conventions, and yeah, Brian, it's been fantastic right. talking to you. I don't want to take any more time, and yeah, I look forward to seeing you again. Right.